Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 18th, 2014, and this is episode 1487 of the Survival Podcast. And I have Ian McCollum on today. He is an enthusiast, to say the least, into old military surplus rifles and other firearms. He's got a great new show out that's on uh, on the internet called InRange.tv. And uh, he also has an awesome blog that I've been a reader of for a very long time called Forgotten Weapons. He's been on the show once before. Uh, everybody seemed to like him, so we brought him back for another discussion on what's going on in the surplus market and what rifles uh, in particular are outstanding values for long-range shooting at this time. Before I bring Ian on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is J.M. Bullion. Uh, J.M. Bullion is my choice for silver and gold, and if you give them a chance, you'll see why, and they'll become your place to go get your silver and gold, too. Uh, they do a uh, minimum order is $100, but if you're buying silver or gold uh, across the, the, the Internet, so to speak, through the mail, I really don't even think you should be talking to anybody unless you're spending at least that much. Here's why. If you're going to buy one coin, go down to your local coin shop, keep the money local. Uh, you're going to end up ahead because there's a cost of shipping. But when you get up to $100 order or larger with Jam Bullion, they have an incredible benefit, and that benefit is no cost of shipping. All orders ship free, $100 minimum at Jam Bullion. Then if you go and you look at like the two biggest silver houses out there, Monix and Atmex, and if you compare the pricing on most of what JM sells with those two huge silver houses, you'll see their prices is better. So their price is better, free shipping, and personalized service. You'll only get that at JM Bullion. It's the best place I've found for silver and gold purchases. Check them out today and you'll see why. Remember, if you're doing larger orders, $300 or more, they also do offer a discount for members of the Support Brigade on top of that free shipping. Next up today, something else that's equally important to you, in fact, I would say more important to you than silver and gold, is water. And making sure that you're drinking on a daily basis the cleanest and freshest water you can drink and that you're able to produce good quality water no matter what at any time. Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, will help you do that with Berkey Water Filtration Systems. I think most people in the prepper world know that they're one of the best systems you can get, and they are an incredible buy for the money. They do a great job. But why get your Berkey from Jeff Gleason? Well, because he's the Berkey guy. You want to be the person that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could have got it from the actual, original, real Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason? Check him out today. His website is directive21.com. That's the word directive followed by the numbers two and one, a dot and a com. You will find great deals on Berkey's, and you will find a lot of other really great stuff on his website for your prepping needs. And he also does discounts for members of the Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on benefits, and click on uh, log into your members account if you're a member. Click on benefits once you're in there, and you'll see the discounts for Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy, and jmbullion.com, and about 60 other vendors. On that note, if you're not a member yet, that's just one of many reasons to become a member. Discounts to over 60 companies. I'm always looking to improve the quality of the discount companies that we have in there for you. Uh, these are discounts that are exclusive to my members and available nowhere else. Uh, it's not that the company might not run a sale once in a while with an equal or even better discount on rare occasions, but these discounts are available 24-7, 365 for members uh, of my support brigade. You'll help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. When you get done, if you think this show's worth a couple dimes, consider joining. 
And if you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, uh, you do qualify for a discount, whether you're active duty or prior service. Just email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will send you back the discount code. If you're already a member uh, around renewal time, we can get you the discount if you don't already have it. But I've been doing the discount now for about two and a half years. Uh, so if you don't have it, it's not because I didn't offer it. Anyway, if you want to learn more about the Members Brigade, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and you'll find out all about how to join, sign up. I Remember, I do take uh, cash check, money order, silver, uh, and sometimes barter through the mail. There's a form on the site you can fill out and mail in for that. And if you're thinking of paying with silver, right now I take an ounce per year. And uh, with the price of silver being under 20 bucks for as long as it is, I'm going to change that to two ounces per year unless silver goes way back up on January 2nd. So this is it's always been a steal to uh, to sign up with silver. But right now, uh, you're taking my money. Right? I mean, you're you're getting for 16 bucks a $50 annual product. So uh, if you're thinking about silver. Now would be the time. Uh, next up today, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. The year's 1487. I've got two from the awesome Alex Shrugged at the TSP Wiki for you today. I've got Witch Hunter's Manual in the Patriot Act and Seizing the Silver Mines of Venice. I'm going to read Witch Hunter's Manual in the Patriot Act because, boy, it does really look at modern government in an odd way. Uh, a book for witch hunters comes out this year. Der Hexenhammer, or Hammer of the Witches, is published by Spire, Inspire Germany. Heinrich Kramer has been having trouble convincing his fellows that witches and magic exist, so he has written down his thoughts in a book on how to best detect witches and their evil spells. It helps that Pope Innocent VIII, and remember whenever somebody calls himself innocent, they're not innocent, has issued a papal bull giving the Inquisition wide-ranging authority to seek out heretics. Although the Pope is not endorsing the book, he did call Heinrich Kramer a dear son with the book and the papal letter in hand. What more does your local witch hunter need? Witch hunting Germany will reach a peak in 1562 when severe hailstorm will cause so much damage that several women will be put on trial for sorcery. Eventually, 67 women will be convicted and put to the flames. My take by Alex Shrug, if you read the papal bull, it seems clear that it is a blank check almost as bad as the U.S. Patriot Act. Agents of the Inquisition are given permission to write their own warrants. At least when a king wrote out a bull of a tender, he still had to put his name on the document and have it approved by Parliament, but apparently the Pope's authority is more wide-ranging. Here is a quote from Pope Innocent's letter granting authority to the Inquisition. Moreover, for greater surety, we extend these letters disputing this, deputing this authority to cover all aforesaid provinces, townships, dioceses, districts, territories, persons, and crimes newly rehearsed. And we grant permission to the aforesaid inquisitors to proceed according to the regulations of the Inquisition against any persons whatsoever rank and high estate, correcting, um, multing, that is, fining and confiscating, imprisoning, punishing as their crimes merit, those whom they have found guilty, the penalty being adapted to the offense. So basically, those that are charged with prosecuting this can do it to anybody they want and imprison, punish as the crimes merit, uh, who, whoever they have found guilty, the penalty being adapted to the offense. That sounds a lot like the Patriot Act, but it's for terrorists, Jack, it's for terrorists. You know what's going on right now? 
that, that kind of ties into this with hysteria and the public opinion being used for political agendas and to harm people. Uh, for the first time in a long time, I absolutely agree with something President Barack Obama has done. And I've heard from a few of you guys going hysterical over it already, which please stop, and I'll tell you why here in a second. But the President of the United States has resumed diplomatic relations with Cuba. And on on the, the announcement of this, yesterday I was in my vehicle, I had to actually go somewhere for a change, and I was on the road for about two hours, and I heard two different talking heads discussing this, and aligning the threat from Cuba with being equal to the terroristic threat from nations like Iran and North Korea. Cuba represents zero threat to the United States. It is a remnant of the Cold War. And the fact that we have an embargo on Cuba, we do not have normalized relations with Cuba, is insane. I had one person email me, but the Cuban Missile Crisis, I shudder to think. What are you shuddering to think? The Cuban Missile Crisis only had to do with Cuba in that it was Cuba where the missiles were going. They weren't Cuban missiles. They were Russian missiles. They were missiles that were being provided by the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, which doesn't even exist anymore. And we have relations with Russia. We have relations with almost every nation in the world that was part of the Cold War at this point, other than North Korea and Cuba. Now, North Korea has a unique situation that I will let go for now, but Cuba? Cuba? Let me tell you something about the Castros. If you read Lee Iacocca's book, Where Have All the Leaders Gone?, that was written about 12 years ago now, uh, Castro contacted the United States government as early as 1984 and said, what do you need us to do? What do you, what, what do you want? We will work with you. We will bargain. We will come to the table. And then in, in, in the, in the mid nineties, when the Soviet Union pulled the rug out from underneath it, an, another attempt was made that was just basically, we'll do anything you want. But for political gain and, 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 and to rattle fear in the hearts of people in this country, oh, we can't do that. And there's this tiny group of people in South Florida that are people that were thrown out of Cuba during the revolution that have this fantasy that one day they'll return to Cuba and take back their family lands. And it ain't going to happen, and it's never going to happen, and it isn't enough to sway the Florida vote. It really isn't. And Florida doesn't always decide the election because it did once. Okay? This is nonsensical. And it is absolutely ridiculous that we have such a, a tense relationship with a country that could not harm us if they really wished to. And there's certainly not an, part of the access of terrorism if even such a thing exists. But... When you need to convince people that certain things exist, even with the magic and hocus-pocus of television today, and terrorist groups in combat footage praying and spraying at an angle where their, their rounds must be 18 feet in the air at 500 meters out, is not enough, so you need documents to prove it, and things like the Patriot Act. And then we just say that anybody who doesn't do what we want is part of the group that we wrote this book for, and therefore they're evil. 
you know, there, there, there are countries that do pose a legitimate threat to us uh, that have stated that that's their intent. Uh, Cuba just isn't there. The reason I say that this is my take and I bring up Cuba and what's going on right now is if there ever was a modern witch hunt associating Cuba with terrorism activities from nations like Iran and Syria, yeah, that's a witch hunt. That's a complete and total witch hunt. And to hear conservative talk radio hosts make that argument took what little credibility people like that have, with me anyway, and destroyed it. I have no tolerance for stupidity. Anyway, with that, let's talk about something a lot cooler. How about military surplus rifles and cool stuff that's available from some of these older weapons? And hey, in comparing them to things like the AR-15, is the AR-15 even a modern rifle? To discuss all of that and more, let me bring on Ian McCollum of ForgottenWeapons.com and InRange.TV. And with that, hey, Ian, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. Hey, man, you've been a part of our community for quite a while. and You've been on the show before, but there's probably a lot of people that have no idea who you are. Uh, I have you on today to uh, talk about military surplus uh, guns and old military firearms and, and things like that. Uh, but how'd you get into that? Can you give people kind of your background story? What led you to being, uh, kind of fanatical when it comes to these older guns? <laughs> well, I actually started out as just kind of a run of the mill gun nut shooter sort of guy with a lot of historical, uh, specialty in my family. I have a lot of historians, uh, going up the family tree and, uh, ended up hanging around some people with some really impressive old firearms collections, um, and mechanically unusual firearms collections and, uh, kind of got addicted to it, uh, took off a little bit about four years ago, five years ago now, actually, um, started a, a blog called forgotten weapons talking about unusual and interesting and prototype firearms, uh, the idea was to try and get a lot of information on those kind of guns on the record and, and available as the, the people who knew about them are slowly passing away and as documents and, and original sources disappear. So been doing that for a while. Um, I just a month or two ago started doing a, a new second project with a friend of mine called InRange TV. We took a look at some of the, well, all of the, the firearms content available on on you know, mainstream cable TV and decided that pretty much all of it sucked pretty horribly and we figured we could do better. So we're working on that, doing that right now. Awesome. So folks, if you want to learn more again, in range TV and ForgottenWeapons.com. And I'm a pretty big fan of your blog. I've been a subscriber since you started it. Thank you. I appreciate uh, it. But anyway, um, we are here to talk about what we call old military arms, I guess is the, the way that we look at it. So, Oh, there's a lot of people that are really kind of hip on building their own AR. They're hip on long-range shooting and things like that. You know, what is the best deal in old military arms for, let's say, long-range shooting today? I have really been a huge proponent of the Swiss rifles. The, there's a whole series of them, um, the K31 being the newest, uh, introduced in 1931 and used clear through the end of World War II. Uh, but then before that, there were uh, several others that are just as good and, frankly, I think a little bit better in some ways. The uh, the K11, the G11, and the G9611. 
So the oldest of those is was actually the 1896 pattern of rifle adopted by the Swiss military. Uh, they updated them to the 1911 pattern in obviously 1911. And I think I, I can't come up with a better cost-effective long-range rifle than one of those, either a G11 or a 9611. Um, now the the carbines, the the 1911 and the 1931 carbines are. They're pretty good. There's not a whole lot wrong with them, but the, the long rifles are just a little bit better, I think, if if what you want to do is put rounds on target at a particularly long distance. Um, these are iron-sided rifles. They're straight-pull bolt actions, which is a bit unusual. Um, it's a system that never really took off commercially, the, the whole straight-pull system, um, although there are eh, four or five major military examples that were adopted, the Swiss rifles being one of them. Uh, what I think they really bring to the table are an extremely smooth and reliable bolt action. They have six-round magazines, which is kind of par for the course for a bolt action. It's a little better than five, which is a bit more common. Um, the cartridge that they fire is 7.5 by 55 millimeter Swiss. It is, in all practical purposes, equivalent to 308, but not interchangeable with 308. Um, one particularly nice thing about these rifles is that Swiss surplus ammunition is still available on the market. Um, I usually there, – there are a couple different places that have it, but the Swiss surplus is frankly as good as anything that you can hand load unless you get really, really deep into hand loading. Um, and it's about 50 cents a round. So that used to be you – know, several years ago, that was pretty ridiculously expensive. Today – that's cheaper than you're going to pay for any halfway decent 308. So I think, frankly, as ammo prices have gone up, these these older Swiss rifles have just become better and better deals. Um, the guns themselves are available typically 350 to 400 dollars. Uh, although I will point out, actually, Wideners has them has the 9611 long rifles right now for 265 bucks, which wow. is an absolute screaming deal. Uh, I have no idea how many they have or how long that'll last, but man, if you can get one of those, you're, you're certainly not going to do any better than that. Uh, what I like about these is there are a lot of very subtle details on them that once you're into shooting, you know, the, the typical random guy who picks one up probably won't notice a lot of this, but if you've gotten into shooting, especially precision rifle shooting, I think you'll really appreciate some of the details that are in these rifles. Um, things like the front sight post is perfectly squared off so it gives you a very nice crisp sight picture and it's actually tapered so it's wider at the rear than it is at the front so that again you get a very crisp sight picture with no chance of the sides blurring the the outline of the front sight blade um, the the stocks are free floated or very close to free floated depending on the example you get that's not something you typically get in a standard production infantry rifle they have very good triggers compared to pretty much any other military rifle you can find. Um, uh, really, everything you – they're head and shoulders above any other surplus military arm for actual precision shooting. Well, it's like the Swiss just generally didn't do things halfway. Yep. Like the quality of, of just about anything manufactured in Switzerland, especially if we look at – the, the the turn of the last century up through World War II era, uh, and I think has continued on to be very high quality. But through that period, uh, and if you're looking at things that were made during that period, it's hard to find someone that did something with more precision than the Swiss. Absolutely. 
you just think of pocket watches, for instance, and, and the precision that went into something like that. So when it came to arming their military, can you talk a little bit about that straight pull bolt? I know that it's something that's unconventional for people, but I've always actually found it to be really nice. Yeah. I, mean, I don't get why it didn't catch on, other than politics, uh, honestly. Well, I think the reasons they didn't catch on were primarily that for a military, they cost more than a typical turn bolt, and they don't really provide – the advantages they provide aren't necessarily all that important to a military procurement officer. Um, for the individual shooter, they can be. Um, and secondly, on a commercial market, I think a lot of typical firearm consumer shooters – in the U.S. at least, weren't used to a straight pull. They never really had experience with one, and it was something that they would have been a little iffy to to go out and, and buy themselves. You know, things would be different in Switzerland. If we'd ever adopted a straight pull rifle here, I think people would be much more familiar with them and much more willing to buy them on a commercial basis. Uh, but historically in the U.S., what, what U.S., well, Ex-soldiers typically knew about straight poles were Canadian Ross rifles that had this reputation for either not working or blowing up and killing people. Yeah, which, I think when you look at a, 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 a Schmidt Rubin, you look at it and it just seems like that can't be high quality because what's keeping that thing from blowing back and hitting <laughs> me in the face? And if you understand how the mechanism works, it's 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 as reliable and dependable as any turn turn bolt. But it just has this look. I think the American shooter who's used to the bolt locking in with that, that crank down on it sees that as that, that can't be as good. Right. I, I agree completely. Um, what you actually have mechanically is basically a bolt inside of a bolt sleeve, and the two have either gear teeth or cams operating between them. So what happens is when you push the handle forward, you're running typically a cam that then rotates the actual bolt so that the locking lugs lock into the receiver. Uh, the, the recoil when you fire doesn't actually act on the bolt handle, so there's no chance of it actually unlocking and opening. Instead, you pull the bolt handle back and it opens. Uh, this is actually very similar to a lot of semi-auto rifles. Uh, if you think about an AK, for example, it's if you don't have a gas valve in it or a gas port in it, it's a single-shot bolt-action rifle, mm. um, straight pull bolt-action rifle. And and nobody really worries that an AK bolt's going to come flying straight back out of the gun when they fire because, well, frankly, because people are just used to them. Uh, but if you look at it mechanically, you understand that that just doesn't happen. Um, and the Schmidt-Rubin is just like that. It's, it's an extremely well-made system. It's a very well-engineered system. And it's a very strong system. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned that AK, so I gotta, I gotta point this out. Maybe I'll teach you something. I doubt it. You, you probably know everything there is to know about this stuff, but oh, I always have things to learn. <laughs> but when I, when I, when I purchased my first Yugo uh, SKS, right, mm -hmm. um, I discovered that that little valve that's there to allow you, the, the the original soldier to use the grenade launching feature. Up at the end of the the, the 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 gas mechanism, if you push it over to where it belongs to do that, and you fire it, it does not eject the round, and it essentially becomes a straight pull bolt action. Exactly by doing um, that. And and when I was working with teaching younger kids to shoot, and didn't want them necessarily able to fire lots of shots really fast, or get amazed that the gun went off and turn around with it, uh, I would use that feature. It was kind of a really cool thing. 
Yeah, I actually never thought about using it in that context. That's a good idea. Um, mechanically, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah. What what you're trying to avoid is having the the recoil of the grenade throw the bolt back harder than a typical shell would and damage it. So that's why you have the gas. So you know why. I didn't know why. I just knew that. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, using it for teaching, that's a really good idea that I'd never thought about. Yeah, because you know how kids are, you know. I I had this one kid named Zach. He was a friend of my son's. And you'd you'd set him up to shoot, and he'd fire, and he'd get this look of, like, awe on his face. And he'd just start rotating. (laughs) It's like, when can I learn to shoot a handgun? I'm like, when you stop doing that. Yeah. (laughs) But it was great because basically I turned this into a a bolt-action weapon so that – it, it right. just gave me a better feeling of safety. So if you're calmer as a coach, then your students calmer. You know, uh, definitely. Now on the on the uh, on the sh- on the uh, the Swiss rifles, we talk about long range shooting. Sooner or later, people want to put optics on it. I know you're not a big fan of bubbaizing these these old guns. Um, so what are the options for doing something like that? Actually, they're pretty good. Um, I there's either one or maybe two different manufacturers out there who make a scope mounting kit. And what's kind of cool about it is that it actually doesn't require any permanent modifications to the gun. It it bolts onto the gun using existing pinholes and and threaded screw holes. So those are available. Um, They're probably more easily available for the K31 because it's the newest and the most common. Uh, But you can get them for the older rifles as well. Now, I think the important thing to keep in mind that some people don't maybe don't recognize or don't pay attention to is a scope won't actually allow you to shoot better. It just allows you to see your target better. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing something like competitive bullseye shooting, or if you just want to practice marksmanship skills, there's no reason not to use a a, a target you can actually see. Uh, You don't have to try and camouflage your targets for maximum realism. You just use a nice black and white bullseye to practice pure marksmanship skills. And in that case, I don't think a scope is particularly necessary. Um, You will shoot the same kind of groups with iron sights that you will with a scope, as long as you know your fundamentals. I think save the money on the scope until you get to the point where you want to shoot at things that you can't actually see with the naked eye. Yeah, definitely. I, I would agree with that. I think that, that that is a big deal for some of us, though, that aren't exactly born with the best vision to begin with. So no, that's true. You know, there's people like me that we, we have, you know, I, I have 2040 in my, my strong eye and like 2200 in my weak. So it's, it's, it's tough. Now, I was actually, I, I agree with you, though, on iron sights. I remember when I joined the Army and the first time they put an M16 in my hands and I was shooting at, you know, basically half man sized targets at 300 meters. And they were dropping on the, the pop-up targets. And I, I was kind of blown away because I'd grown up my whole life as a deer hunter with, you know, iron sights are for a running deer at 20 yards. Uh, they're, they're not for shooting a deer 200 yards away. And the concept that you could be that accurate was a little bit foreign to me. But once you learn the weapon and shoot it the way it was designed, it becomes remarkably easy to make good hits at ranges two, three, four hundred meters. Yep, exactly. Um, and the... And the Swiss rifles are the ones that will do it most easily. Um, a lot of these things are one or two minute of angle rifles as military. Yeah, out of the Cosmoline, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of it's kind of amazing. Um, on, on that note, you know, I think about these things when back in the day, which wasn't that long ago for them, they were one hundred and eighty dollars, and you could buy as many of them as you want. Uh, I remember when the when the Swedish uh, Mausers were released in in the the, the early nineties, they were 
three for a hundred, you know, a hundred eight <laughs> bucks or something like that. And you look at some of those things. I remember when I was a kid, uh, the M1 carbines, uh, were at a place called Lane Co. And they were like $85 off the shelf with all the accessories and everything. And, and nobody was buying them. And, and you think, man, if I could just go back to that time and not be broke, I would buy a bunch <laughs> of those and they'd be in a case right now. Is there anything on the market like that right now that, or that you might soon be released? That's one of those opportunities that people don't see that maybe they should take while it's there. Uh, acknowledging that even at 300 bucks, these are a deal. I don't really know about any, well, I don't have any secret information about what might be coming shortly. Um, I, I find out that stuff when the ads show up in my email box. Um, as far as something you're going to regret not buying, I think, frankly, the Swiss stuff really falls into that category. Okay. Um, they're still reasonably available. Um, they're like, well, like the thing with wideners, there are still occasionally retailers that will have batches of them. Um, Simpson Limited in Illinois has a whole pile of them. Once they get a little less common, I think the prices are absolutely going to go up. Um, yeah. Uh, another one kind of like that would be Finnish Mos Nagants, although a lot of those are going up in price already. Um, for a long time, they were kind of lumped in with all the Russian Mosins yeah. uh, as just plain old Mos Nagants, and you know they're worth hundred bucks or whatever. But the Finnish ones really always were a, a step above in terms of quality and accuracy and, and fit. And people are starting to recognize that now. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely. I think, I think even the, like really the, the, the base model cheap Mosins, I think still those are worth picking up just because they're so cheap too. Um, because there will be a day when they're not everywhere and they've either been hoarded Bubbaized or made into a lamp or something. I mean, yep. it, it will happen because with the Swedish the M96, people were like, "Oh, these things are just going to be here forever." Uh, yeah, they're accurate, but they're this big, long, old gun, and it's this weird caliber. And, uh, and and now, I mean, to find one in its original shape, you're in, in a nice shape, which they were all in nice shape back then, is hard to do, and and you're going to pay for it. Yeah. I think people have a tendency to just psychologically downplay the value of something that's really readily available. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, those things, well, they can't be all that great because they're three for a hundred bucks. And, and yeah, if I really want one, I'll just get one next month. And then they disappear. And then it's only then that people start realizing, you know what? These were actually really nice guns. And yeah. I really should have bought like a dozen of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, we were talking about these older these older guns too. So like the uh, the K11s, I guess, are from what, 1911, and and some yeah. of the other ones are from before the turn of the the century. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're looking at guns that are now oh close to 120 years old. Yep. And then we're talking about these rifles that are 100, 120 years old, and, and some of the our folks that are really in, enamored with all these modern guns and accu triggers and stuff like that and uh, modern semi autos and all. Earth might be thinking, well, how well does the shooting skills that you can practice with these old weapons translate to modern firearms? I think extremely well. Um, not everything is is 100% transferable, be, you know, from one gun to the next, but all of your fundamentals are. Your trigger control is, your sight alignment is, your sight picture is, your follow through is. Um, you know, if you spend five years shooting one specific type of gun and then you transition to something different, 
yeah, you're going to have a short period of acclimation where you have to get used to things like different handling, different uh, feel of a trigger pull. But 90, 95% of your marksmanship training is going to transfer over just fine. So, you know, I think especially for a beginning shooter, someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of money to go buy the best and the hottest and newest and greatest, you don't necessarily have to. Go out and buy something that you can afford that's in underpriced value and and practice with it. And when you, you know, a couple of years down the road, when you've got the money to to invest in some really high-end firearm, you'll be, you know, all, all the practice you've put in will carry on with you and transfer right over to that new gun. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. So um, when we're looking at improving our shooting skills, are there any things that, that maybe these older guns really lend themselves to as far as helping people develop their marksmanship at a higher level? I don't know that a, an old gun will help you more than a new gun. Uh, what I think is that the the important skills to practice don't really change from one to the other. Uh, you know, one thing to remember is that the fanciest new guns we have today are still basically 60-year-old designs. Uh, the AR was developed in the late 1950s and, frankly, mechanically hasn't changed at all since then. Um, most of the other brand, so-called brand-new guns out there are basically re rehashings of guns that are really similar vintage. There's not much out there that's mechanically newer than the 1960s. So when you're trying to figure out what's worth buying and what's not, eh, just because it's new on the market doesn't mean it's actually new. Um, When it comes to to improving shooting skills, I think the, the thing to do that maybe people don't automatically recognize is practice carefully. Um, what you don't want to do is spend a lot of time doing things that are not helpful and get really good at doing things that are not helpful, only then to discover different different techniques that you need to be using or different skills that you need to develop that you've now overlooked so long you've kind of you've already built yourself a habit of doing them wrong. So things like taking a gun out and throwing some tin cans down and just kind of plinking away at them doesn't really help develop any shooting skills. It may not be bad for you actively, but if you really want to develop shooting skills, I think you need to spend some time, identify specifically what you need to work on, and then carefully and diligently work on improving those skills. So if I wanted to improve just my my pure marksmanship, my ability to put a single round in the very center of a bullseye at a long distance, what I would do is set up some not necessarily super long-range targets. I would set up targets that are as far away as I can practically shoot at this point. And then I would be, I would very carefully and deliberately shoot at those. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go out bump firing at the 20-yard line. (laughs) (laughs) But do it carefully. Practice. I recognize um, what you're doing, what works well, what doesn't work well. Um, you should be able to develop an ability to call your shots, meaning that you can tell if if a round hits, say, high, you should know that it hit high before you actually go down and look at the target. Mm-hmm. Now, that takes practice to develop a skill like that, but that's the sort of thing that you should be aiming for if what you want is marksmanship skills. And I think the same sort of idea applies to developing, say, combative skills. If you want to be out there and practicing gunfighting skills, then 
let's look at some of the specific specific skills that are involved in doing that well. And I think that would be things like particularly moving targets. Um, a lot of in in a lot of ways, combative shooting is more challenging than actual marksmanship uh, because you're looking at things like shooting at moving targets. Uh, you have to develop timing as well as as well as being able to put the round where you want it. You have to put the round where you want it and also when you want it when the target is in the right place, uh, doing things when you're under physical stress, so doing things when you're out of breath, doing things after you've been running. Uh, frankly, there are some skills that are they, – they require a little bit of um, physical environment, you know, permissive environment to, to do, but they don't require a lot of ammo necessarily. Uh, in order to develop these things, you don't have to go to competitions that are all about hosing close-range targets down. <laughs> uh, you know, there are things you can do on your own with a limited amount of ammunition budget and still get some real benefit from. Yeah, I like moving back a bit on your distance for a variety of reasons. I think that if you if you get really down to very small scalable targets, you can make close range practice, uh, begin to approximate shooting at, at greater ranges. But like you said, if you're shooting soda cans or something like that, you can lull yourself into believing that you're a better shot than you are because at, let's say, 25 yards, 25 meters, hitting a soda can is not that hard. And the, 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 the same error that will still allow you to hit that soda can at 25 yards would have clean missed uh, a much larger target at, let's say, 200 meters. Absolutely. And Let's I not forget that often if you hit next to a soda can, the, the jump of dirt will move it. Move you it. You, it. You know, I feel good <laughs> about it, and I still knock it over, what have you. But when you're printing on paper or ringing gongs 200, 300 meters out, you, you, you get the feedback that's very, very telltale to whether or not you're actually doing what needs to be done. And I also think it starts to help you learn what you, you said when you're – when you're, you're shooting high or shooting low or pulling left or pulling right, it helps you learn to call your shots, I think, a little bit better. Yes. Because, well, you see the dirt fly, and you know it went high, and you, you, your mind, even if you're not really zoned in on it, thinks that's what shooting high feels like. You know, mm -hmm. you, you realize, okay, I lifted my head up. When I lifted my head up, I pushed the stock down a millimeter, and that translated to a half a foot at, at 200 yards. Yep. I'll tell you, for people who are looking for something more reactive and exciting than just paper, um, the the match – I shoot a two-gun match every month that I enjoy fantastically. Um, and the the, mat, the club recently picked up a new target that I hadn't had any experience, experience on before. And I'll tell you what, it is the most humbling and challenging target I've yet encountered, so much so that I actually ordered – one of my own for my own range this week. And it is a, uh, it's made by MGM and it's a spinner. It's basically a, a horizontal axis about two, three feet above ground. And it has basically a lolly shape, lollipop shaped, um, steel plate, one, one pointing up and one pointing down and they're connected. So basically you have a, a 10 inch plate at the bottom and then about three feet above it, you have an eight inch plate. And when you hit one, these two start to spin back and forth or rock back and forth. And the, the point of this target is to spin it a three, full 360 degrees. And these things, there's enough weight and enough friction in it that you have to hit it multiple times. With a 223 at like 100 yards, you're talking about six or eight 
hits in a row. And as you start to hit it, these things start to move. So all of a sudden, instead of just having a static target to hit, now you have to time when the target's going to be visible and when it's actually traveling away from you so that mm-hmm. hitting it will will speed it up instead of slowing it down. Uh, tell you what, there that's, that is about the most effective skill-building target I've seen yet. That that definitely makes the mental computer switch on. Yeah, uh, as I start, I start thinking about that. Uh, yeah, I, for some reason, it's making me think of miniature golf. Right, <laughs> people laugh at miniature golf, but some of the miniature golf courses I've seen, right, there's a there's a lot more going on than the green going three degrees left. I mean, it's it, it, and, and those types of things that you start to realize how powerful the the mental computer really is. Um, there's, as you, you know, you develop your marksmanship, there's times where, you know, you, you take a shot and you almost don't, you, you see the sights, but you almost don't, if you know what I mean. You get almost to an instinctive level, and that's that mental computer, uh, going to work. Uh, and I, and I think that, that anything that can switch that on starts to, it was like, it's like training a muscle group. So if, if you do a lot of curls, you start to build your biceps. If you train the mind for that mental computation, then it starts doing that uh, even when you don't realize it. Yep. And and just having the the time factor on this thing as well is a uh, man. If you may think you're an awfully good shot until you get on one of these things, and then you realize just how much how far you still have to go. Um, because of course there's friction in it. So if you don't make shots fast enough, the thing is it's always slowing down. And you know. Too many misses or too long between shots, and you will literally Who's never get it to spin. Wow. <laughs> Who makes that? Um, the one our, our club bought is by MGM. Um, the one I bought was actually from a little uh, independent company called MOA Targets, as in Minute of Angle. Okay. Um, those guys just introduced theirs. I, I met them at a gun show here, and that's why I bought theirs. Very cool. So when this podcast goes out, it may or may not be up on their website yet. All right. Very, very cool though, man. It's, it's good to learn about new things like that because they make, well, they make, you know, shooting fun. And I think if it's fun, you do it more. Yep, absolutely. Um, one, one of the things in your notes here is you said that older guns can be just as good as a modern AR-15 while costing less and looking better. Uh, <laughs> I may be slightly biased in that. Statement, okay. But <laughs> what, 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 what are your thoughts on that? Well, basically, Everyone, well, at least a lot of people, think the AR is, is fancy and modern when in the truth of the matter is it's not. It, it was, like I said, developed in the late 50s. Um, it has changed aesthetically since then, but it hasn't changed mechanically. Uh, the, the core function of the gun is identical. Uh, if you want to argue, and some people would, that we have some modern adaptations like gas piston uppers for the AR, well, the gas piston system is, frankly, older than the direct impingement system, uh, and not a good idea. Um, <laughs> so, so I say that not, that not was how you really feel. My own. Well, it's interesting. I actually had a chance to interview a guy named uh, L. James Sullivan, who was one of the two engineers who worked for Armalite and actually designed the AR-15. They took Eugene Stoner's AR-10, and they scaled it down to the two twenty three cartridge, and while I was interviewing him, I brought up the subject of gas piston systems, and he is most definitively in the camp of they're not a good idea um, for a couple of reasons. Mechanically, they don't work as well. Um, the, 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 the gas impingement system on an AR is actually not, not really direct gas impingement. It is a piston. 
It's just that the bolt head and the bolt body are the, the, the cylinder and the arm of the piston. So what happens is it's blowing gas into the bolt carrier where it both pushes the bolt carrier backwards and it pushes the bolt head forwards. When it's pushing the bolt head forward, it's actually relieving pressure on the locking lugs and easing the process of unlocking uh, the rifle. When you put in a gas piston system, first off, it doesn't do that. All of the force is pushing straight backwards. Uh, the gas piston systems also, they, they impinge force off the, the top of the, the bolt carrier. So you now have a moment of uh, force coming back, where with the original gas impingement system, the, the the unlocking force is coming directly on the same axis as the barrel and the bolt. So for a number of technical reasons, I, I have no particular desire to own a gas piston AR. Um, there are a few situations where there are, they have some benefits, um, suppressors being probably the biggest one. But other than that, you know what? No, no. And frankly, that gas piston system is pretty much copied off the Soviet SVT-40, which came from the SVT-36. So you're talking about a design that's 80 years old now mm. instead of 50 or 60. So, um, at any rate, what I was getting at with that comment in general is that the reason that that the AR is so widely accepted is because the military accepted it and because the the aftermarket parts market has developed for it for 60 years now. So we see a lot of widgets and add-ons for it that make it look like a more modern thing. Um, frankly, most of those widgets aren't necessary. Uh, some of them are, and and the people who actually need them can elucidate exactly why a specific add-on is useful and necessary. But I think for the vast majority of people, you're really much better off leaving the rifle stock, learning how to shoot it well, and actually developing an understanding of what add-ons are actually helpful instead of just being more black and costing more money. It seems like marketing has done some disservice to firearms over the years. I remember, I can't think of which show it was. It might have been Sons of Guns. It was one of the ones where they, you know they have the the factory that makes guns customized for people. And they had this one firearms instructor guy that they were building an AR for him. They were calling the Katana, which was basically a stock AR. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they're now marketing, not doing shit to the gun. Right. <laughs> and it's like, you know, can we just accept that it's, it's a pretty damn good platform. It does what it does fairly well. Um, I, I think that it's, it's useful for its intended purposes, um, I, I think that I can understand why we've gone to a five, five, six round for combat usage, just for weight, transportation. I think for the intention of making bad guys dead, a thirty caliber round just does a better job. Uh, it would be hard to say that it doesn't, but I, I get why they do that. But in the end, it doesn't matter how much crap you attach to it. Um, and, and I have a pretty blown out customized AR that I love. But I also am under the understanding that the round still does what the round does. It still has its limitations according to the, the base frame that's underneath it. And it, it just is what it is. Uh-huh. It's not going to be more. It's not going to turn in, you know, despite the gun control legislation, it's not going to turn into a, a Star Trek weapon because we make it look like one. Right. Now, that said, it does, it does have semi-auto fire capability, right? And uh, there's a lot of people out there that really enjoy that. So we've talked mostly about the, the, the K31 and the earlier variants of, of, of that frame. What about the person that's looking for 
a good semi-auto um, and says, okay, I'm open to something from you know the surplus rifle world uh, other than the AR. What, what's out there that you think is, is really a good value for the money and a really great weapon overall? Well, as far as semi-auto goes, probably the best um, the best economic deal um, or the best balance of, of quality and economy that I know of at the moment would actually be the VZ58. Uh, it's a Czech semi-auto from eh, well, obviously 1958. Um, it, same time period as the AK was being developed and adopted, and it, actually, most a lot of people mistake them for AKs. They externally look very similar. What's nice about them is they're available between four and five hundred bucks generally. They're a very reliable action. They're very accurate action. Um, they don't use standard AK mags, but their own magazines are durable, high quality, and still available fairly cheap. And they do shoot standard 7.62 by 39, easily available, uh, cheapest ammo you can get at the moment. So I think those make a, a pretty good carbine for someone. Um, I would not dissuade someone from buying an AR. They're, they're frankly, they're a really good gun. Um, I mean, I think you have, you have some. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I actually do not have an AR. No, because, really? Okay. No, because I'm snobby and they're boring. Okay. But there's a difference between it being interesting and it being effective. And okay. the AR is absolutely effective. Um, the thing about an AR, though, is if you're going to get one, you need to spend the money to get one that's at least decent. You do not want to buy the cheapest AR out there. No, I agree um, with that. One of, one of the descriptions a friend of mine told me once that, that I think is really appropriate is to compare the AR-15 to a helicopter. When it works right, it's a fantastic piece of equipment that can do all sorts of extraordinary things. But all it takes is for one little teeny part to stop working right, and the whole thing goes down in a ball of flame. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things. If you The, the very low-end ARs, you get tolerances stacking between different parts manufacturers and you end up with something that's not quite in spec, and they just won't run right. Um, and some will, some won't. It's you know, it's a, a throw of the dice. If you're going to get an AR, spend the money to get one that's decent, that's built by someone who really knows what they're doing, using parts that are made by quality manufacturers. And at that point, you're probably talking about a thousand dollar rifle. So if if that's in your budget. Go for it, absolutely. It's got all the the parts compatibility is out there. The aftermarket support is out there. You'd never have to worry about that sort of thing. But if you don't have a $1,000 budget, I think probably your next best option is going to be a VZ-58, and after that, an AK. Yeah, I was going to ask you if we could back up on, on the VZ for a minute, and, and <laughs> what, in your opinion, would make you choose it over an AK other than maybe you can get it for less money? Uh, they're more accurate, and you can okay. get it for less money. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, the one thing I would suggest to people who are considering getting one, a lot of them out there are available with folding stocks. I would highly recommend the fixed stock. Okay. It gives a much better cheek weld, and I think it will give you better results. I think the people's interest in folding stocks is not necessarily sufficiently tempered by reality. They're cool. They look neat. But frankly, the only time you actually use them is if you have to transport the gun in a confined area, which pretty much nobody ever does. Um, yeah. You throw it in a gun case and throw it in your trunk. That's what they're, they're good do. if you're jumping out of an airplane with a parachute on your back. Yes. I mean, that's. And if, <laughs> and if you are, you can probably get something that's a little higher end than a VC 58. Yeah. But, um, the downside to those folding stocks is most of them, and the VC-58 is an excellent example of this, don't allow you 
anywhere near a good cheek weld. You're going to have a much harder time getting a good sight picture, and and they're just not anywhere near as comfortable to use. You know, I'll tell you why I think people are enamored with them, because the government has made it something you're not supposed to have. And yeah. it's the same thing like, you know, the way I got my son to eat kale for the first time. I told him he wasn't big <laughs> enough to have kale, and it was only for grown-ups, and it was too yummy for little kids. And then he ate the kale, right? Right. Now he wants it. Now he wants it, right? So, but but in the end, he would really rather have a piece of like Laffy Taffy or something like that. So, I, I think in the end, a lot of us would actually not really want some of these features that they've outlawed. I'm not defending or or regulated, especially in like California, or whatever. I'm not defending the regulation. I'm just saying the rev, the regulation could actually have. Uh, a detrimental effect if you're if you're wanting it just because you're not supposed to have it type thing. Uh, I guess you know it makes me think of the, the world's greatest gun salesman. Uh, we all know that's Barack Obama. That guy sold more guns than I think any other human being on planet Earth. Because when he got elected, uh, if you remember, there were uh-huh. when I went to gun shows, they had his picture up, and they were <laughs> like there was some that were like planted up one way. They were like saying, thank you for selling so many guns for me, Barack. And then there was another one, like this guy had this really tricked out, uh, Barrett 50. And it's, it had Barack Obama's picture and it said, better buy it before Obama takes it. And, you know, I, I'm not really trying to be political there or anything, but I am saying that there is this tendency to want what you cannot have. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate to wanting what you, sh- what's best for you. Absolutely, yeah. How many people really cared that much about a muzzle break on a 20-inch rifle before the assault weapons ban made it a taboo thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was all. It's all. It, it does. Then I can also understand that people are like you know what I'm going to do it because I can now because your your ban is gone. <laughs> Stupid. But in the end, when it comes down to functionality, I, I've never once had a rifle with a folding stock that I've shot and thought, boy, this. This really balances well. This really mates up well. Uh, I, I, I want it because it functions well. Uh, I get the point. I get why they're there. But like you said, it's not something we often uh, worry about. You're probably, I mean, I can think of like backpacking and stuff, but then you're looking at like a takedown Ruger or something like that. It makes more sense than a folding stock. Yeah. So, And the, the reason I specifically brought it up with the VZ is there's a lot of them out there with folding stocks for sale. Um, and it's not quite... And there's a little more to it than an AK to swap that over to a fixed stock. Okay. Typically, if you get one of the common AK folding stocks, it'll either be decent if it's one of the recent designs or if it's one of the old uh, Polish or Romanian or German wire side folders, it's extremely easy to just pick up a fixed stock and swap it out. That swap – well, the swap is just as easy on a VZ, but it's a lot harder to actually find the, the, the fixed butt stock parts. And they're more expensive when you do. So do yourself a favor. Just get it with a fixed stock to begin with. Is there anything else out there that you, you think of in the, the surplus rifle world that's a, uh, something interesting to look at uh, that, that's not ridiculous? You know, I'm not mortgaging my house to a second mortgage to afford buying uh, in the semi-auto world. I see stuff sometimes from like Argentina and stuff like that pop up. Argentine stuff is actually extremely good quality, although there's not – uh, not a whole lot out of it out there that I would really recommend right now on the the practical side, um, with the exception of their 1911 clones. Uh, if you want a 1911, an Argentine surplus, uh, either a, a 
pure copy of the 1911, which was their model 1927, or one of their simplified guns, like a Ballister Molina, I find those to be extremely good within the limitations of the 1911 design. Uh, namely, it's going to have tiny, crappy sights. If <laughs> you don't mind that, then they're great. Uh, I shoot a Ballister Molina quite regularly, and I like it, and I just acknowledge that its sights are pretty much crappy. Um, the the one I'd love to recommend, but it's kind of a little uh, – there's a huge caveat to it – is actually the French Moss 4956. Um, the, it's a 30-caliber semi-auto. The French developed it right after World War II. Um, actually, it's an evolution of a design they had going before the, the war. Um, they were used in Indochina. Uh, the French Foreign Legion used them for quite some time. They're available. I've seen them as low as 350 bucks. And pretty much all the ones that are available in the U.S. were refurbished by the French government in the, the 80s or even 90s before they were sold. So they're all, almost all of them are in excellent condition. Um, Ten-round detachable mags. They're extremely reliable. I've, I did some reliability testing. I haven't published this video yet, but it will be coming out. Uh, between a Moss 4956, a Springfield M1A, and an AR-15. And the Moss was nearly as reliable as the AR, and it ran circles around the M1A. Huh. The problem with them is that they are chambered in 7.5 French, which is a fantastic cartridge that is expensive to buy. Ah. Um, yeah, the surplus, unlike the Swiss guns, there isn't really any good cheap surplus out there. There's cheap surplus, and there's, well, there's pretty much just cheap surplus, and it's, you really have to know a lot of detail to get good surplus 7.5 French. Um, there is commercial ammo made, but you're going to be paying probably 75 cents around for it. And that's, eh. and there's only one company that makes it. So uh. it's hard to keep it in supply. If it weren't for that, I would love to recommend the 4956. They're fantastic guns. Um, they're the thing, someone, I can hear them right now saying, yes, but there are a lot of 308 converted ones on the market. And that's true. Unfortunately, they were all converted by Century, and it is an extremely hit-or-miss um, question whether you'll get one that actually works. Mm. Um, they can be made to work, but it takes a bunch of work, um, and I would not recommend going into that unless you're doing it deliberately as a project. I'd say that your best bet might be a $30 set of Lee Pace Setter dies uh, and, and looking at reloading, I get, but I don't know yeah. what the brass availability is. Exactly. The brass is not really that much cheaper or easier to find than the ammo. Um, the, the projectiles are standard 308 caliber projectiles, so they're not a problem. But, yeah, it's the brass and ammo availability kills the Moss as a, as a very practical gun, um, unfortunately. You know, hey, if you're willing to buy the gun and invest in a couple thousand rounds of ammo right now, fantastic. But for that same price, you could – you could put more money into the gun rather than the am in rather than the ammo and probably be better off. What about handguns? I know you're really a long gun enthusiast, but uh, there's some there's some pretty cool stuff out there. The the Tokarevs are still around. I, I've always thought they're yep. kind of a cool gun. Tokarevs are fantastic pistols. Um, actually, the ammo thing kind of goes for them as well. It's easier to find Tokarev ammo. Um, and in my experience, they'll also run just fine on 7.63 Mauser, which is dimensionally the same but a little bit lower powered. Really? Um, uh-huh. I did not know yeah, that. Um, we were shooting one with uh, Fiocchi 7.63 Mauser, and it, it ran just great, frankly. Wow. Um, there are a couple different kinds of Tokarevs out there. 
The the only oddball is the Yugoslav one, which has a slightly longer grip and uses a nine-round magazine instead of eight. Um, so, and because the grip frame is actually longer, you cannot use standard magazines in a Yugoslav Tokarev. Uh, the reverse, however, is true. You can use the nine-round Yugo mags in all of the other standard Tokarevs. Mm. So that's, yeah, if you can get your hands on some of the mags, you get an extra round. Um, they're basically a, a slightly updated 1911, frankly. Yeah, um, and, that's part of why I like them, I think. Yeah, uh, fantastic guns. Do be aware, they basically, in military service, other than the Yugo, they did not have a safety of any kind. Yep. Uh, so they were designed to be carried, uh, I suspect, with the chamber empty. In theory, you could carry it with the hammer at half cock, but uh, <laughs> that made me a little nervous. Well, there, remember the old saying, you can't go off half cocked? There's, there's you shouldn't be able that to. <laughs> exists, right? That wasn't just somebody, somebody said, oh, that sounds cool. There's a reason that somebody came up with that. Uh, as long as the gun's in good shape, yes. So if you're willing to take it apart and verify to yourself that, that you're comfortable with that, absolutely, go for it. Yeah. Frankly, I'm not convinced that it's really that much faster to cock the hammer as you draw compared to rack the slide as you draw. Yeah, yeah, so, I agree with you. I agree with you. But like, just when you said that, it was the first thing I thought of. Is that there's that old saying? It's like in every old West movie, <laughs> "Don't go off half cocked," you know. And there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's probably a reason. It probably involves somebody missing an appendage or something. <laughs> you know, I wish I could remember the name now, and I can't. It's escaping me. But there was one uh, significant old West gunfight that actually started because one of the combatants' guns did literally go off half-cocked. Really? Yeah, and that, that started the, the gunfight because he wasn't intending to fire. And yeah. uh, it was actually proven at the trial later on that the gun was, in fact, defective. And it was, I wish I could remember what that was. I just can't think of it. Yeah, it probably wasn't um, the OK Corral, but it was... <laughs> no, it wasn't that one. Um, you know, I'll say, if someone's looking for a, a pistol in 7.62 Tokarev, and I don't think as many people are today as used to be. Uh, for a while, that ammo was basically free. Yeah. Um, and it's not anymore. But if you're looking for one, I would very strongly recommend the Tokarev over the CZ-52. Okay. Um, there's a lot of press out there saying the CZ-52 is some sort of super strong gun. It's not. Um, it actually has a far lower margin of safety than the Tokarev. Uh, it has a number of weak parts that are known to break, the rollers and the firing pins. Um, there, They also have a a, a bit of a reputation for the decocker not working and firing when you decock the gun, mm. and and they don't feel as good in the hand as a Tokarev. So if if that's the kind of thing you're looking for specifically, strongly recommend the Tokarev. Anything else um, in that handgun world, CZs or you know anything that you you, you know find interesting? The nice thing about handguns these days is that there's a lot of modern ones that are very cost effective and very good. Mm-hmm. Um, Glocks, XDs, uh, with the exception of the grip safety in the XD, um, the Ruger SR9, um, the Smith & Wesson M&P, they're all great guns, and you can typically find any of them for 500 bucks or less. Sure. Um, so at that point, pistol. a lot of the pistols have come up. You're probably looking at bare minimum 200 bucks for a surplus pistol of you know that sort of stature. And yeah, there's not as much of a, a disparity in price there. Um, yeah. And a lot of, frankly, a lot of the old pistols are not really good concealed carry guns today. Sure. Um, the ones Job that are. From a collector's standpoint, I mean, there's some stuff out there that's still reasonably affordable and kind of cool pieces of history. 
But there are great pieces of history out there, no doubt about that. Um, the number of them that I would actually carry myself is yeah. small. Yeah. Um, the handguns really have improved more than rifles have, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So tell us about this uh, this this online thing you're doing, this inrange TV. So uh, before I get to there, let's, let's yeah. start out with a statement you made that most of the uh, the gun shows on TV suck. Yeah, now, I happen to agree with you. I have one major reason, but why do you say they suck? Uh, there is too much drama, and there's not enough actual intelligent content. <laughs> uh, I I was actually on one episode of Sons of Guns, which was an eye-opening experience. I'll tell you, um, it was interesting. It thoroughly killed any interest I had in in having a TV show. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, non-reality um, TV, I'm sure of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the problem, I think, in, in large terms is that on a cable show, in order to be successful, you have to – you have to have, frankly, a really huge audience in order to attract enough advertisers to make it worthwhile for the production company and the network. And in order to do that, you absolutely have to dumb everything down to the lowest common denominator so that you can get literally millions of people watching every episode. And if you want to present something that's actually highly technical and nuanced and detailed, you're not going to get that many people because there just aren't that there are not millions of people waiting to tune in to every episode of a show like that. And that makes it simply not practical for a medium like cable TV. Fortunately, we have the internet, which has exactly the opposite setup, where, frankly, I can make a show, making it profitable and cost-effective is kind of one thing, but if I, I can if I can produce the content myself, it may be worth it to me if there's 100 people willing to watch it. So... Mm. We really have a medium where I, I'm sure you've commented on this before that the gatekeepers are gone. In fact, I know you have. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I love the gatekeepers being dead. Yeah, that's, uh, that's... <laughs> I can do what I do only because the gatekeepers are gone, and I can put out well with Forgotten Weapons, the pretty technical, uh, esoteric gun stuff that would never survive in mass media, but I can do it because. I don't need a million people to, to look at everything that I do. So the idea that my friend Carl and I had with InRange TV was let's let's do what what the gun show ought to be, what we want to see, and let's make it some sort of intermediary between the production quality of an actual TV show and the production quality of a you know a random YouTube channel, and let's let's get the best possible content we can and and make it fun and enjoyable and informational at the same time. So we're can, can you talk about like some of the content you guys have? What are you what are you talking about? What are you doing? What are you showing? Is it all military rifles? Is it modern rifles too? What what exactly are you hitting on? We are covering everything, the whole spectrum. So that was part of the other the other part of the idea was I don't want to limit myself I love Forgotten Weapons. That's a passion of mine, but I didn't want to limit in range to it. Um, so we're looking at modern guns as well as old guns. Um, we have a, one of the, the intermittent series we have is Old West Vignettes, looking at gunfights and gun-related events from the Old West in America. We're, we're both out here in Arizona, and we have access to actually go to a lot of sites of just really interesting esoteric events that people don't know about. 
Um, we did one on a, a battle between Apaches and Confederate regulars at a place called Dragoon Springs out mm. here during the Civil War. You know, how many people realized that the Apaches were fighting the Confederates? Um, one of the, the the very first video we did, which I think is also it, it's a really eye opening thing to watch. Um, we got our hands on some World War II era exploding ammunition. So <laughs> the yeah. Both the Soviets and the Germans, and actually almost everybody made this stuff. Um, it's a, the, a rifle bullet that actually has an explosive compound in it. And the idea was you'd use it for observation. So you could, if you're trying to get the range of a, a target that you, know, you suspect is, say, 700 yards away, you set your sights to 700 yards and you fire around to this stuff. And it'll make a nice big poof when it hits and you can see where it impacts and adjust your range. Um, you, you you would use this for things like spotting for artillery, and you can give the artillery an accurate range estimate. Well, on the Eastern Front in World War II, both the Soviets and the Germans ended up authorizing use of this stuff by snipers on human targets, mm. something that would be otherwise very much discouraged by like the Hague Conventions. And we'd, we'd read about this. Um, there are some German memoirs or memoirs of German snipers who used it, who talk about how ridiculously effective it was. And frankly, it sounded like a lot of baloney. Um, so we got in touch with some ammo collector groups, and we got our hands on a number of these cartridges and went out to test fire them with a high-speed camera and a bunch of ballistic soap. And holy crap, that's th- those rounds are full of holy crap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're extremely impressive to to see on video. Yeah, and and you don't want to get shot by one. We were. Yeah. We were very genuinely surprised by just how much of an impact they actually make. I guess I don't want to get shot by anything, but the bigger the hole, the worse, the higher probability of death. And uh, I guess if you're dead, it doesn't matter. I, I think with things like that or like the white phosphorus stuff and all, it's it's the injury that you survive that seems far more cruel. I mean, war is cruel in of itself, but it, it's the survivor. Uh, or the guy that survives for a few hours that, that some of these weapons seem to really be, uh, uh, Pretty nasty. Yeah. I mean, if you hit in the head yeah. dead, you don't, you, whatever you believe about the afterlife, I'll tell you one thing, your, your current situation, your problems are done. Your yeah. deaths are settled. You're over, right? You're, you're on to other things at that point. Yeah. Um, so, but that so would be ex- cool to see. I mean, I'm going to have to look that up and, and watch that. That's, you, yeah, you should definitely check that one out. Um, and that's a good example of kind of the technical side that we're doing. Um, and the one other area that we're trying to also focus on is looking at some of the underappreciated aspects of the gun community. So every, you know, we all know that there's a big chunk of the gun community that's basically white dudes with black rifles, and that's that's fantastic. But we want to look at some of the other aspects out there as well. So uh, one we actually just recently posted was uh, from the DEFCON, the 2014 DEFCON Hacking Convention. Uh, it's held in Vegas. It's the the biggest. And it's pretty much an unabashedly – it's a computer hacker convention. Um, you do not want to take unprotected wireless devices in there or they will be destroyed. Um, and there is a, a shoot associated with it for a couple of days. So we decided to, to go down there, and we spent uh, an afternoon at the DEF CON shoot talking to the attendees about the, the intersection between hacker culture and gun culture because there really is quite a large intersection there. And we wanted to hear from them on why we have techies getting into shooting. 
Well, what did they say? Well, I mean, that's an interesting idea. What was their primary motivation? Well, one of the one of the coolest guys we talked to out there was the the guy who actually runs the shoot. Um, he goes by the name Deviant, and one of the connections he came up with was that there is a lot of both in, in firearms and in computer security. There are a lot of examples of things that are potentially dangerous, but also potentially very useful. So some of the, the tools that you would use to exploit vulnerabilities in computer systems are in many ways analogous to black rifles. Um, yeah, they're dangerous if the wrong person gets their hands on them and uses it uses them for evil. But that doesn't mean that a whole lot more people can't own them and use them without there being any negative effect on anybody, and in many cases, positive effects. So these penetration testing tools you can use to actually secure networks. Firearms you can use to defend people mm-hmm. in the same way that they can be used to hurt people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that you know, the, the hacker thing, I think, is something that people don't really understand uh, to a large degree. It's always some guy on TV that's trying to end the world or something. Um, Sound, sounds kind of like the TV take on gun culture. Exactly, it? right? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think about back in, in my early days of Internet marketing and in the SEO world, I was about as black as a black hat could be. And But we didn't use black hat SEO techniques for clients because sooner or later those things are going to bite you. What we did was we used the black hat techniques to miss, to, to manipulate the search engines to better understand the algorithm so that you could then use, you know, white hat techniques or gray hat techniques anyway on behalf of your clients. And the, the people that kind of got all over the black hat community with an SEO, number one, don't know that in, in, in hacking, the black hats are the good guys, by the way. Uh, but they, they don't understand that like a lot of the reason that Google works as good as it does today is because black hats made them make it work that good. Because it was yeah. so easy. There, there were so many ways you could exploit the search engines back in the days when people used something like Lycos that it was so laughable the way it was manipulated that if, if we had not kind of forced their hand to make it better, Right, and I, so I think that uh-huh. hackers have done that to a large degree as well. That a lot of hackers that really meant no harm did what they did to prove it could be done, and that made banks, government, anybody that had secure data realize we have to we have to do a better job. Yeah, absolutely. Just like maybe running some preparedness drills might help you be more prepared. I don't know, but um, weird. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the other thing, when you hear about unappreciated parts of the gun culture and, you know, the white guys with black rifles, when I start thinking about that, I think about the fact that, like, I love ARs. I do. I think it's a great gun. I don't care what you say, Ian, you're wrong. It's a great gun. <laughs> and it is interesting. But, but it, it, you know what? One day when, when they when they all go to surplus, then you'll want one. But the, the reality is I, I love ARs, but I don't love guns because of ARs. And I don't love guns because of military weapons. I love guns mostly, and I'm looking at it sitting against my wall right now because I had it out to play with it recently, uh, because of an old Marlin Model 25 bolt action 22 that I probably killed more squirrels with than people that live in my county. <laughs> and I grew up as a country boy out in the woods uh, putting food on the table with a gun. And I think that is starting to become an unappreciated part of the of the the firearms community that that yeah. people are so emphasized on the tactical and you know what 
accessory and can clamp onto this and what rail and the, the very thought that, you know, and I've talked about it before. When I was a kid, every adult I knew had a, a general shotgun, kind of a special purpose shotgun, a handgun, a deer rifle, and a 22. And that was like, that was it though. Like they had those five guns and those five guns did everything that person needed. And I think that's another part of gun culture that we're starting to lose. I don't, it, it'd be interesting to know how much we're actually losing that and how much Not of it simply isn't like getting covered on the internet. States, but I guess is the way I'm talking about it. Like, I know we're still out there, but is any, but like, you don't really read about that in gun magazines. You don't see it on TV. <laughs> well, you know why? The problem is people like that you can't sell new stuff to every year. No, no. You actually value what you have, want to keep it forever, hand it down to your kids, and then they don't buy a gun. And That's just uh, crazy talk. That's just nonsense, <laughs> right? I mean, but I'm, I have this old um, bolt-action um, shotgun, 16-gauge uh, shotgun that I think was 50 bucks. And mm-hmm. I got crazy one time and, and, and routered in an, an inlet into the stock and, and put this thing where you could mount a scope on it. So you could shoot slugs, 16-gauge slugs with a bolt-action <laughs> shotgun. And it's got one of the old uh, – it's a Mossberg, by the way. And it's got one of the old uh, external choke adjusters. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I was sitting there looking at that gun one day and thinking, you know, honest to God, that $50 gun would do everything a person that, that, that hunted in North America would actually absolutely need done. Not the best – but it would do it, and that we've maybe gotten a little over-specialized in our world. <laughs> I can't argue with that. You're right. I'm still going to take my own six when I go elk hunting, but, you know, I'm just saying, it, it would it would do the job. Yep. <laughs> and if you were the guy who went out and practiced with it, I think a lot of people would be absolutely shocked at how effective it could be. I, I know the first time I, I, I broke doubles clays with it, the guy that I was with was <laughs> it. That you can break doubles clays with a bolt action shotgun. It was just ridiculous that that could be done. And nice. it, it's really not that hard. It, it really isn't. It's now there's some doubles clays that are, are, you have to really be quick on that. It. It's tough, but you know, a straight double shot is not that difficult. Um, and I think that there's, I think that's part of why I like the older military weapons as well is, you know, they were state of the art for the time, but they're not anymore. I mean, and, and they make you, more in touch, I think, with the the craft of riflemanship, you know. Yeah. Um, skill trumps gear every time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today. Again, tell folks how they can uh, see your new show and read your blog. Well, uh, my personal blog is ForgottenWeapons.com. Got six or seven days a week there of interesting old esoteric gun stuff. And then this new show is available at Full30.com, F-U-L-L-3-0. Um, and that's a, a fairly new channel out there, um, a, a private alternative to YouTube that is specifically focused on guns. So in addition to in-range TV being on there, there are also a number of other channels you will probably recognize from YouTube. And uh, I think it's it's going to be a very cool thing. It's still in its early growing stages. So definitely you know, check out the Exploding Ammo video. Check out some of the other <laughs> stuff we've done over there. You'll definitely get a kick out of it. All right. All right. Well, Ian, man, I thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Ian McCollum helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we 
Yeah. 